Jill Shong. This is How on Earth, the KGN News Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 7th, 2023. Coming up, mountain lions in northern Colorado. We visit one of their favorite habitats along the Front Range, where there is a large conservation easement. They will only stay in habitat that is of super high quality. And we get into recent media coverage about mountain lions. I expect media to do a better job of of sharing what's really happening and being an advocate for wildlife. When there's a wildlife commission meeting, animals are not at the table. There has to be a voice for those animals. Sylvandale Guest Ranch is located near where the Big Thompson Canyon opens up, west of Loveland. It contains 3,000 acres of a wooded valley, foothills, ridges that extend into the mountains. The Jessup family that owns Sylvandale has put 70% of the land, the lion's share, into a conservation easement. This is remarkable since French Range property like this would have long been subdivided otherwise. It is here where mountain lions are very much at home, as well as bobcats, black bears, and coyotes. I came to Sylvandale to experience the beauty of the land and to learn about mountain lions from Wild Nature Media's David Niels, who has been studying these apex predators using remote cameras in strategic locations. You have how many remote cameras set up to capture footage of wildlife? 42. 42, and they are spread out where? Those are all in northern Colorado. I've got uh, 12 here uh, at the ranch, and then I have some up the Big Thompson Canyon, some over at Lyons, and some northwest of Livermore. And how long have you been filming wildlife? Oh, using these types of cameras just over 20 years. It started off as a passion. Now it's moved into an obsession. (laughs) And my sisters are worried that it's going to move into a sickness from here. (laughs) So I got to stay in the obsession. Stay the only obsessed. I love it. So your, your guiding principle is that wildlife is enough. That nature is enough. Or nature is enough. Can yep. you explain what that means? Nature is enough when you're filming wildlife. Well, I, I feel strongly that any footage that I capture, I'm mostly interested in learning more about wildlife and their behavior and the habitat they need. So I want all of my footage to be accurate. What's happening naturally with completely wild animals? So that's very different than, let's say, an elk laying on the golf course in Estes Park. Right. That animal is not sensitive to human scent or presence. I'm only interested in filming wildlife that are, that would not put up with my human scent or presence, and that's why I use these remote cameras, trail cameras, camera traps. And I feel if I'm going to share it with the public... I don't really advertise my work, but I have people right now from 195 countries following my work without advertising. So that tells me there's there's demand from the public to watch the real deal. Well, your your images are stunning on your website. They're stunning. 
Well, those are the best of the best. You know, you get, you get, <laughs> you, you filter. If you, well, if you, you get a lot of false triggers. You know, I have a lot of footage of mice and voles and wood rats that would probably not hold your attention. <laughs> well, because this is unique to, um, I'll say, Colorado versus northern Wyoming and, and then Montana, where I'm from, when this snow melts, we're going to have warmer weather. Today, it's over 20 degrees. I mean, it feels like barbecue weather compared to a few right. days ago. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> and, uh, and these south-facing folds, the snow's going to melt. It's going to go into the ground. And because of the intensity of the sun, we're actually going to get green grass growing on this slope within the next two weeks. Really? Yes. And it may only last for five or ten days before it freezes out again. But in that time... When an ungulate, a hooved animal, deer, I'm mainly talking deer and elk, when they can switch from browsing, which is eating the ends of brush, to going back to grass, even in the middle of winter, they will. And the mountain lions know this. Yeah. They, they, know, they know these places and they know what's happening and they know when deer and elk are going to be concentrated. And that's fascinating to me. They can predict. They, they know it's coming. They, they know, know what's they coming. They know what's coming. Right. They know what's coming. And 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 you'll see, especially on this main ridge behind Alexander, the, the finger ridge is coming off to the west up there, which we can't see. We're, we're looking at the east face of this now. Those finger ridges have beautiful, big 400-yard south-facing slopes. And what I noticed when I was studying uh, male mountain lion scrapes up there for four winters in a row, that mountain lions, when that condition um, presented itself, they'd be going along the top of the ridge and then, boop, they'd drop off on these finger ridges to check for deer and elk feeding on those faces. That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We have, we are so blessed in northern Colorado to have these places. And again, thanking the Jessops for preserving this. I don't smell egg McMuffins when I'm hiking up the trail, <laughs> right? I smell wildlife. Yeah. It's, it's such a great classroom to learn. And I love taking people out here and other places, you know, to help them understand these connections. Because the more that you're aware of when you're out in nature, going back to nature is enough, it's absolutely fascinating. How are the bear populations or mountain lion populations doing this, you know, in these few last years as opposed to, say, 10, 20 years ago? I would say they're doing better. Um, and that's part, there are many reasons to take um, mountain lions. In northern Colorado, we had a real dip in deer population because of chronic wasting disease. Uh, and the, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife. To, to get a handle on that, they issued more tags. And so we saw a huge drop in the number of mule deer. And because mountain lions are dependent primarily on mule deer, we would see a corresponding drop in the number of mountain lions. But now those deer populations have come back and are doing really well. And we have, you know, a high percentage of, you know, mountain lions especially in this uh, in this area. So what would you say are the biggest 
misunderstandings that the public has based on wildlife filming of mountain lions. But there are two things that are based on mountain lion films where the public was hoodwinked for like a hundred years. Mountain lions do not den in a rock cave in the side of a cliff with a single entrance, single exit. A den is only used by a female and her young, her offspring, for, you know, five or six weeks. An adult lion doesn't go back to a den every day. She would never put herself or her young in that vulnerable position of being inside a closed space with one exit, one entrance. I had wildlife researchers who, you know, studied collared lions, and they showed me where the you know, actual lion dens, they look like nothing. I would have walked by all of them. Really? I never would have pointed with my finger and say, that looks like a mountain lion den. It was, you know, like a log falling over with some brush behind it. It, it wasn't that enclosed. No, it wasn't enclosed. It, it wasn't your Hollywood, you know. <laughs> and, and many times, habituated, tame animals were used in those films where they'd throw some scrap of meat back into the cave, and then they'd attach some goofy car salesman narration to it. Yeah. You know, and now the line <laughs> is getting ready to den. <laughs> you, know, you know, gag me with a used car. And, and then the other thing is they don't wait on rocky perches for slow prey and slow hikers to walk by. So people are always like looking up in the rocks to see if there's a mountain lion. No, that's not where they are. Again, that was all fabricated. Sometimes even taking the lion out on a leash with a collar. Oh, geez. And then brushing the collar marks out and then attaching that goofy narration to the lion. (laughs) Now, Jim Bob coming up the trail, he's got to be careful because lions are watching him. (laughs) Please. Ready? Yeah. So a couple weeks ago, I was walking up the trail. I got to this spot, and there was a set of juvenile lion tracks. I knew they were juvenile because they were less than three inches. Okay. They're about two and three, two and three quarters inches in diameter. It was a single track, probably a juvenile male. And I thought, huh. Now he's still too small to kill a deer. To hunt deer. So he's still going after the same prey that coyotes, fox, and bobcat. So we're talking mice and voles and wood rats and rabbits and Merriam's turkeys. And I thought, I bet, I bet this lion is going to go down into the creek bottom and hunt the creek bottom. Now, an adult lion wouldn't waste their time because there's no deer right in the bottom of the creek. Sure enough, he went down, hung a right, and he walked up this creek bottom for about 450 yards. That's fun, you know, to stand here, see these tracks, and have that, huh, I wonder, thought, right? Now, not always does it turn out to be, does your hypothesis turn out to be true. But whether it does or not really doesn't matter. I think having, having that expectation or that goal or, or a hunch and then checking it out, and then it's like, oh, next time I see a juvenile track, I'm going to follow it further because I want to learn more, right? Yeah. Even though I've been studying mountain lions three times a week, 52 weeks a year for 
20 years, there's still a lot to learn about this animal. Most things about this animal, I still don't know. What are the things that you've seen on your cameras or witnessed that have surprised you after all these years with the footage? I, I think when comparing a mountain lion to those other three predators, coyote, bobcat, and fox, yeah. I, I didn't realize initially that how a mountain lion hunts is just radically different. And once that light bulb started to come on, so I initially, I just followed lion tracks in the snow, forwards or backwards, wherever I had snow for the farthest you know, distance. Didn't matter whether I was following the tracks forwards or backwards. I just wanted to learn about their behavior. And one of the things I picked up on is, okay, they're always hunting in cover yeah. compared to a fox, bobcat, or coyote, which is very comfortable being out yeah. in the open, yeah. crossing fields, standing in the middle of a field. A mountain lion won't do that. And I think because their prey stands on tall legs, right? And if they bump a herd, if they spook a herd of deer, let's say, that deer herd could move into a different valley. If a coyote pesters a mouse or a vole that runs under a rock, the mice or vole doesn't say to its friends, hey, it's time to move to the other valley. Okay. Right? Their, their prey are already isolated. They're going to stay, right? right? Their prey isn't going to move. And it's very easy for a bobcat or a coyote to sneak up on something that's so small. Okay. Right? Whereas a deer standing out in that field, poof, they're going to be gone. Okay. If a mountain lion tries to cover open ground. Interesting. Right? Yes. So that makes a mountain lion... That's one of the things that makes a mountain lion so much more predictable. They have to be stealthy. They, they have to, to see. They have to see coverage that allows them to be stealthy. Yeah, and I've also, you know, I use uh, wind currents. Four different types of wind currents in in my work: the dominant wind on a high pressure day, cold air drainage, thermals, and what's happening during a low pressure system. Now we're coming out of a low into this beautiful bluebird sky. Um, high pressure system and you can you know you can see the barometric pressure it dipped a few days ago and now it's climbing very rapidly out of that low and when i'm if if we could have timed our trip out here to be in sync with barometric pressure we would have seen more tracks for animals that depend on their nose either defensively and or offensively if we would have waited until the third morning of a high pressure after that low why why because wow. because um coming out of that low the first two days of high pressure these animals that um, have been cooped up during the low and yep. they're cooped up because during a low pressure i learned from nolan duskin our former state climatologist i've learned a lot from him he said there's a lot of vertical lift of air. Yep. And that causes very inconsistent airflow. Okay. And animals that depend on their nose don't like that. They don't like moving across the landscape with the wind whipping from all directions. Now, there's a few exceptions to that, which I can talk about. So they'll wait. They'll hunker down until the air currents are consistent again. Now, what we're feeling right now, since it's a warmer day, we're starting to feel thermals, right? Right, yeah. Coming up. Uh, up Solzer Gulch, and then those are going to be blown out in a couple hours, most likely by the dominant wind okay. coming right at our face. And um, and so once the wind currents are consistent again, then 
these animals, they've been cooped up and now they're going to go out and they're going to lay down 130% of tracks that they would lay down on just a normal high pressure day because they've been cooped up. So if we wait until the third morning of the high pressure, they've laid down a ton of tracks those last two days and we can take advantage of that. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it does. Thank you. Yeah. So this um, meadow that we just walked up through, the trail goes right through the middle. In 16 years, I've never seen lion tracks on this section of trail because it's too exposed. So when they're coming up, right before we climb the hill, they go right up the bottom. Then they come up right through here yep. and they step onto the trail right here. Okay. Over and over again. Staying concealed from predators. And I have a camera on the tree right here. And in this place, we have three of the four factors that I use to pinpoint line activity in play here. We have first wind direction. We have the dominant wind coming yep. out of the northwest in the wintertime yep. and the uh, um, cold air drainage coming down the valley. Second, we have a topographic pinch point because of this rock slide in front of us. Yep. So animals don't want to cross that, especially deer and elk. And if deer and elk aren't over there, there's no reason for a lion to be there. Okay. Okay. So again, we don't look up in the rocks to see if a mountain lion is looking at us. That's not where they're going to be. And the third is an edge. Now, most people, you think of an edge, you think of an edge of a meadow, right? Or the edge of a body of water. Well, the bottom of a valley is also an edge. The top of a ridge is also an edge. Anything that creates a path, an obvious path for wildlife, would be considered an edge. So we have wind direction, topographic pinch point, and an edge. The last one that we don't have in play right here is limited water. Animals are going to stay on this trail. Uh, and going back again to they will do what they can, whether it's a mouse or an elephant, to minimize calorie loss and maximize calorie gain, right? Right. So they're going to walk where it's the easiest to walk. And they're going to walk right up the trail. So I'll show you a picture of a couple years ago, a male mountain lion killed a deer right here on this slope, dragged it down in these rocks over here. And I got four days of footage and I'll, I'll show you one of those uh, images, but let's check the camera. Let's see if we've got anything. Another interesting thing about those three apex predators. So a grizzly bear and a wolf can eat and digest plant material. A mountain lion cannot. They're, they are what is called an obligate carnivore. They are obligated to only eat meat. They cannot digest plant material. So everything that they eat, they kill. Now, when the snow is really deep, they may scavenge. You know, they may take a roadkill deer off a highway, right? Pull, right. Pull if, they're, it back. if they're desperate. If they're desperate. But they really prefer to eat only what they kill. And so this is an animal that, um, whose food base is much, much smaller. Right. You know, over 50% of what black bears eat and grizzlies is plant material. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and uh, a mountain lion doesn't have that luxury. You know, I tip my hat their way that they can 
thrive in the yeah. right habitat. And, you know, regarding habitat, where mountain lions live year-round, like here, Solzer Gulch, I feel strongly that they are kind of a canary in the coal mine. They They will only stay in habitat that is of super high quality and where they have low pressure from humans. Like I said, I'm the only one hiking up here in the wintertime other than taking groups up here. And they have to have clean sources of water. Uh, they have to have cover. They have to have the right airflow to hunt successfully. All those things come together in places like this. And that's amazing. In late March, beginning of April, when things start to green up, these south-facing slopes are the first places you get green up because of the intensity of the sun. Yeah. Initially, they're very small islands, maybe the size of a football field or smaller. And because the green areas are concentrated, the grasshoppers are concentrated. And because the grasshoppers are concentrated, the Merriam's turkeys are concentrated. They're so ravenous, they're kind of like a buck in the rut in November. They're so focused on those grasshoppers that they're not paying attention to their safety like they normally do. Yeah. And this is the time of year, really the only time of year, where they're super susceptible to getting picked off by bobcat, fox, coyote, and mountain lions. And so right when they start to green up, if, there's, if the trail is muddy, it's just full of predator tracks. Oh, wow. Trying to get those turkeys. Oh, and then once everything greens up, then the turkeys are dispersed, right? Right. They're not in these small islands anymore. So the fact that there's almost a direct connection between grasshoppers and mountain lions, I think is pretty cool. Right. <laughs> this, is, this gets to where you call them predictable, if you know, right. if you see the patterns. Right. Well, what would you say to someone who says, I have the ability to track a mountain lion and I can legally kill it with a bow and arrow uh -huh. and it has been sleeping under a porch or it has been frequenting a residential population and I think that these residents are in danger so I want to do it. But they want to know what you think or what advice or guidance you would have. What would you tell that person? Well, I would say legally you can do that, but don't share it with the media don't make this about you and your ego, which is what happened, the football player that killed the lion with the bow. Don't turn this into an ego trip that you went out and saved the world. That's sickening. You know, and people sent me that article and I said, big ego, lousy media coverage. That was my response. I expect media to do a better job of, of sharing what's really happening and being an advocate for wildlife. When there's a wildlife commission meeting, animals are not at the table. There has to be a voice for those animals. We don't need stories about Gaston saving the day. Right. Right? That's sickening. Yeah. Yeah, that's sickening. And shame on Nine News and, and, and shame on, you know, any organization that tries to make it into this entertainment spectacle yeah go back and reread that article and see was there a voice for mountain lions in this absolutely right. not they were villainized shame on them right and i'm saying this very lightly without using swear words <laughs> <laughs> yeah how did you get interested in studying apex predators 
because I grew up in Libby, you know, surrounded by grizzlies, wolves, and mountain lions. So I would see tracks, you know, of these animals when I was a little kid. And back then I didn't have any cameras. I was born in 1960. But by the time I was five, you know, I was, I was very observant. I could um, ride my bike to a park that then connected to National Forest. I mean, it was wild, just a few miles from our house. But your, your parents would let you roam free in grizzly bear country. Yes, and, and in fact, uh, the, the greatest gift they gave to me, I learned with four friends, um, you know, backcountry survival skills when I was long before 10. Um, and by the time I was 11, my parents, thank God, they would let me go into the wilderness 10 days at a time by myself, starting at age 11. I saw grizzly bears stand up in the moonlight right in front of me. I was not afraid of the bear. I was afraid that somebody would find out and tell my parents and they wouldn't let me go up there. <laughs> That's, that was my fear, wow. not the bear. That was Wild Nature Media's David Niels in our interview outside of Big Thompson Canyon at the Sylvandale Guest Ranch. It is an honor to experience the unique wild places we have in Colorado and to support those who educate us about them. If you're interested in becoming educated about mountain lions and other wildlife, contact David Niels at wildnaturemedia.com, where you can learn about presentations, workshops, and hikes. That's wildnaturemedia.com. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. You can learn more about Northern Colorado's apex predators at wildnaturemedia.com. You can also sign up for a wildlife tracking hike, learn how to film mountain lions in the wild, or view these wildlife images. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find this and other past episodes. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jill Shong.